You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Christ was from a personal experience. He walked daily with the Lord for three and a half years. If you can imagine, I just would have loved to spend one day around the Lord Jesus Christ in his body on this earth. And John and those other apostles got to see him for over three years. I mean, very few people knew Jesus Christ as closely as John did. So what he has to say about the Lord is credible. He'd been there, so his words have meaning. You know, if, if, if someone is to share an experience with you, and, you know, I remember one time in college I had a friend and he was telling me a story about this lake up in Washington and he was talking about how beautiful it was and, and how clear it was and how you could see, you know, 20 or 30 feet down to the bottom. It was just this cl- crystal clear mountain lake and the snow runoff made it so clear and he was describing it to us, to a group of friends, and we were like, man, that sounds beautiful. And then he said... I've never been there, but I've heard about it. And it kind of changes the story a little bit. For all he knows, it could be a muddy mess. But the water, you know, he's never been there. He's never seen it. When someone has experience, it kind of changes the way that you view it. And and the way that John talks about Jesus Christ, the way that that John speaks about about, uh, the importance of fellowship with him and and, and, and all of the things that he describes about Jesus Christ, uh, it makes you kind of perk up and listen a little bit. He's qualified to talk about Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, I've seen and I looked upon and I, my hands have handled and I've heard his words. What John is writing isn't some shot in the dark. Christ came to earth in a human body and John spent a few years right next to him. He was his closest family. From the cross... If you'll remember, Jesus Christ asked a certain apostle to take care of Mary, Jesus' mother, and that apostle was John. They were like brothers. They were that close. John leaned on Christ when he needed comfort, and they were family. And very few people get to experience Jesus Christ like John did. His faith in the Son of God was more than religious activity. It was personal. It was real. It was up close. And that means I have a lot to learn from what John has to say. And what I appreciate about John is that his time with the Lord so profoundly affected him that he wanted others to experience too. He wanted others to have the same experiences. And, and when you've had a, an experience with something, I mean, I, I don't, if you've eaten at a restaurant that was just really, really good, uh, you know, you're not a good friend unless you tell me about it. Don't keep that to yourself. Let me know. Now, on the other hand, if you eat at a restaurant and it didn't go very well, let me know that too. You know, if you've experienced something, then you want the people you love to experience it too. And John is writing to family. He wants his family, God's family, those brothers and sisters in Christ, he wants them to experience all that Jesus Christ has to offer. And I'm thankful for that because he didn't keep it to himself. John's book conveys this message that the God of heaven gives every person an opportunity to fellowship with him on a family level. 
I mean, a family level. You and I can be the family with God the Father in heaven. It's amazing to me. But the other side of what John conveys, I appreciate as well, is this. That as wonderful as that fellowship is and can be, it's important for us to remember that we don't get to do it on our terms. I don't get to fellowship with God however I want to. I don't get to just walk however I want to and then God just comes down to my level and he kind of you know, comes and adjusts to my schedule and adjusts to my thinking. No, John says you can fellowship with God, but you also have to do it on God's terms, which I'm thankful for. Because he lays it out there very clearly. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't hide the truth. He says very clearly, you have to do this way in order to fellowship with God. There are certain requirements to be met. There are certain qualifications to present. There are certain traits that you must exhibit if you're part of the family. If you're going to be a, a lay claim to the family of God, you have to convey, exhibit, manifest certain family traits. And that's where we get the title of the series, Family Traits. John is writing to members of God's family, and he uses the word father and the, and the term little children about a dozen times each. It's a family letter. And, and if we were to look at the difference between a letter from, like the instance, for instance, the Apostle Paul, when Paul wrote his letters in the New Testament, if you read those, it usually starts with something like this, to the saints in Ephesus. Or to the saints or the church in, in Philippi, to the, the church which is in Corinth. So when Paul wrote letters, he was writing it to a church like this one. I mean, he, it would have been like, you know, if we had gotten a letter from the apostle, if we'd have gotten a letter from one of them, we'd probably have gotten it from the apostle Paul. Because he was interested in churches, writing specifically to churches with an address. Well, John's letter's a little different. If you'll notice at the beginning, he doesn't start with to the saints at Ephesus or the church in Rome, or the churches in Galatia. His letter is to God's family. Everybody that's a part of God's family. Now just a note, I believe there's a difference between the family of God and a local church. And in the kingdom of God, there are two categories. You have the family of God, which is kind of the big picture. Everybody that's been born again is part of the family. And then you have local churches. And I don't believe they're synonymous Meaning, I believe that anyone who's been born again and is saved is a part of the family of God. But, I mean, they've been adopted by God into the family. Um, but, but I believe that a church, by definition, is local. See, a church means an assembly. A church must be able to assemble together. In the case of the New Testament church, it's an assembly of baptized believers. If you can't assemble, you can't, by definition, call it a church. A church must gather, it must be local, it's a body, and if it's a body, it must be connected. So if you're born again, you're part of God's big family, but for those of in here who have joined Eastside Baptist Church, you're part of a local church, and I believe those two things are different. And I don't believe the Bible teaches a universal church, that everyone's part of a universal church. That concept, in, in my opinion, weakens um, the strengths of a local church, two of which are doctrinal purity and biblical authority. The doctrinal purity is hard to maintain if you can't monitor what others are teaching. So it's very important for us to maintain doctrinal purity from God's word. It's also important for us to maintain biblical authority 
And as the pastor of the church, God has set uh, this position up as an authority over its members. And I, I don't try to lord over God's heritage. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But there is an accountability system set up. And if you're part of a universal church, no one monitors you. No one is, keeps you accountable. No one helps you to grow like you're supposed to. So, and I'm not saying that, you know, that um, you know, this is the most important matter from the text. But sometimes you just need to stop and explain where we stand on things. We need a local church to be accountable. We need a local church uh, here as we gather together. It's important. It's the way that God works. He works in and through his local church. Not only because of, of us, because he wants us to grow, but because he, he wants to accomplish his mission in the world through a local church. I mean, this is an important thing right here, this church. And I'm not just saying Eastside Baptist Church. And I'm not even saying it because we're special people. I'm saying it because God loves the local church. And if you're not a part of a local church, come be a part of one. This is God's institution on earth through which he will accomplish his great missions. So come be a part of it. God wants you to be a part of a local church. And I believe that every believer, even as, even as we are members of the family of God, we only fulfill our purpose to its fullest extent if we're members and involved and serving in a local church. And I go into that because it's important for us to understand the difference between the church and the family of God. A church member belongs to a church with an address. We meet here at 6101 East 49th Street. This is our local address. A member of God's family is part of a group to which all believers belong. That's the target audience of John's letter. It's a family letter. This, this applies to everyone that, that is a part of the family. And John wants all the members of the family to have the family traits. If we're in the family, we ought to act like it. If I'm in God's family, I ought to think like God thinks. I ought to speak like God thinks. Speak like God speaks. And I ought to behave like God would want me to behave according to his standards. We ought to look like members of God's family. Those are the traits of a family member. And so far, John's emphasis to the family has been on fellowship and joy. If you don't have joy, you're not exhibiting the traits of a family member. I mean, if you live in a, in, with a dark cloud hanging over your head, which sometimes we can be Eeyore, can't we? Oh, bother. Some of you just woke up. Anytime you do a cartoon reference, people just perk up, you know. Well, that's how we can be sometimes. I can be Eeyore sometimes. And I can have a cloud hanging over my head and raining on me all the time. But listen, if, I, if, that, if that is the general characteristic of my outlook on life, then I am not exhibiting family traits. Because as a member of God's family, in spite of all the things that go wrong... We have real reason to have joy because Jesus Christ has redeemed us and cleansed us from all sin. We've got a reason to have joy, and you, but you can't have joy without fellowship. So here's another plug for the local church. You need fellowship not only with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, but you need fellowship with the church family. We have fellowship, he says, one with another. So your fellowship uh, will, will make a difference in the amount of joy that you have. All of these things are family traits, and and he spends a good part of chapter 1 helping us to see how to have fellowship. Well, last week the big idea was that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And I'm thankful for that truth because we serve a holy God. He's holy, he's light, 
And because of that, we ought to walk in the light. And I had a flashlight up here. I didn't know. I thought it might still be up here. But I had a flashlight up here last week. And I was just kind of trying to convey that as we walk in God's light, it reveals to us when we step in the mud. Meaning that there are times where I may be walking along in life and I may not even be right with God, but if I don't expose the light to my, my life to the light, I don't even know when I'm stepping in the mud. I don't even know when my feet are dirty. I don't know when I'm tracking mud across the new carpet because I don't allow God's light to expose my sin. It's very important that we, as members of God's family, walk in the light as he is in the light. The light shows us when we're dirty. Well, today we're going to follow that concept and take it a step further. And as we allow God's light to shine on us and examine our every word and, and our, examine our motives and, and to find our hidden thoughts and, and to see our every secret deeds, as God's light reveals those things in our lives, we are continually made aware of our sin and therefore, we continually make those things right with God. That's the way it's supposed to work. You see, fellowship with our Father is on His terms. And I said that already, but just to clarify, if He's holy, then I can't enjoy a relationship with Him if I'm not holy. If, I, if He is holy and as clean as the Bible says He is, then I cannot be spiritually filthy and have a walk with the holy God of heaven. In the same way that a child is part of the family... And that is a standing that, that can't be changed, but he can live in such a way that his fellowship with his father is broken. If he doesn't follow his father's commands, if he doesn't live by his father's rules, it doesn't mean he's no longer a son, but it does break the fellowship. So as we walk in the light, it reveals to us that our fellowship with our heavenly father is interrupted. That's what the light does. It shows us when we veered off course. If we walk in the light, things are good. But if we stay in the shadows, we remain spiritually unclean with sin and bad things start to happen. And here's where we get into the text here today. Look at verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Here's the first, and I mentioned this last week, I referred to it. There are three if we says in this text. In verse 6, there's an if we say. In verse 8, there's an if we say. And in verse 10, there's an if we say. Well, this first if we say is a person that says, I have fellowship with God. And they're telling other people, I have fellowship with the Father, but secretly, where no one can see, they're walking in darkness. So that's the first if we say. And John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So we say we have fellowship, but we don't. We're trying to convince other people that we're something that we're not. And as in trying to convince others that we're okay when we're walking in darkness, it becomes, we become hypocrites. We say that we're one thing, but we're really not. And so this first, if we say, is hypocrisy. When we're hypocrite, or when we say we're one thing, we're not, we become hypocrites. So the first, if we say, is hypocrisy. The second, if we say there in verse 8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, the deception starts to get more serious now, doesn't it? See, if I'm walking in darkness and I'm living a life that nobody else knows about except God, and I'm hiding in the shadows, and yet I come to Eastside Baptist Church, and this is my church family, and I, you know, I function like normal, and I look like I'm, I look the part, and I... And I act like I have fellowship 
but I'm living in the shadows. At first, I'm just lying to everybody else. At first, I just say I have fellowship, but, you know, everyone thinks that, but I really don't. Well, as you go along, you see this second, if we say in verse 8, and I'm still here, I don't have fellowship, uh, uh, but I have sin in my life. I've, there's darkness. And he says, if we say that we have no sin. So again, I'm over here, and I'm walking in darkness, so I obviously have sin, but I'm still saying I don't have sin. Well, it goes from hypocrisy, where, where I'm lying to everyone else and deceiving everyone else. Well, the more that I do it now, instead of that, I start to lie to myself. So it goes from hypocrisy to self-deception. So you see how it starts to get more dangerous? Self-deception is, is, a, is a very dangerous place to be if you're a Christian. See, even if we're part of the family, we're still human, and the Bible says that we've all sinned. So for someone to stand over here and say, I have no sin, I, you know, I'm part of the family, I have no sin, and they kind of lift their nose up in the air, and they try to look the part, and they try to pretend like there's not sin. Uh, not only are they lying to other people, they're also lying to themselves. We're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. And I know this is not, uh, if, if you wanted to hear a popular message today, then maybe you shouldn't have come to Eastside Baptist Church. Because, like I said last week, we're Baptists and we always talk about sin. That's just what we do. But we're all sinners. All have come short of the glory of God. We were reading a men's prayer meeting last night, which, by the way, on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock, if you're part of this church family as a man, come to, come to prayer meeting. Think about coming and lifting up the Sunday, the next day in prayer, so that God has a, does a work in our lives. It's not just meeting for social reasons. We want the Holy Spirit to come down, and we're depending on him to make a difference in the services today. Come on Saturday nights. We were in Psalm 52 last night, and we were talking about the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it goes on there and it says, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's not one of us. So we can stand up and we can look the part, and for those of you who are guests today, we may, you may see a lot of people in suits and maybe we looked the part, but I'm just telling you right now, we're sinners just like you. We may dress a little different, and we may have learned a little bit how to, you know, how to look and, and act and speak in church. But I'm, as a pastor, I'm a sinner just like you, just like everybody else. There's none that do with good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So a child of God in verse 8 that's claiming, oh, I have no sin. I no longer struggle with sin or I'm not dealing with anything in my life right now. They're putting in them, themselves in a position to be destroyed by that very sin. Paul, the greatest Christian to ever live, not named Jesus, said in Romans 7, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Listen, none of us are above it. We're fooling ourselves if we claim to be free from that sin nature. And we're not just being deceived, we're putting ourselves at risk. I mean, we're playing with something that's dangerous to us. I mean, last, uh, out at the farm where we're staying at uh, Brother Chambers, the first week we were there, their cat had kittens. And you talk about helping your children with the transition, moving from one place to another, just have a cat that has kittens. Because those kittens have received probably more attention than they ever wanted. I promise you that. 
well, they're getting bigger and they're being, they're playful. And one of them, I mean, this is how kids are, but one of them is, dad, dad, come here, watch this. If you poke this one right in the nose, it gets mad. <laughs> well, duh. I mean, if you poke me in the nose, I'd probably bite you too. Dad, look, it's so funny. I'll poke him in the nose and he scratches and claws at me. Well, you know, as a kitten, it's not going to hurt him very much. But I was watching that kitten. I know this is weird, but I have a weird imagination. I was watching that kitten, and I was thinking, if, if, you were, if that kitten suddenly transformed to the size of a lion, my child would be dead. <laughs> I mean, I know that's weird, but, you know, when you have kids, you have a weird imagination. I was thinking, you know, if that, cat, if that kitten was a giant cat, if it was a lion, you wouldn't dare poke it in the nose. Because you know the danger. But see, here's how we are with sin. We treat sin like it's a kitten, but it's a full-grown lion. And we poke it, and we think it's fun, and we think it's silly, and it's not really a big deal, and it doesn't bind me, and, and I'm not bound by it, and it's not going to hurt me. But listen, sin looks like a kitten, but it is a lion. It's like Satan, the roaring lion. And it is always seeking to devour us, don't play with sin and don't stand over here and pretend like you're something you're not. You're not only deceiving everyone else, you're deceiving yourself and you're putting yourself at risk to be destroyed by the sin that you're playing with. It's not a kitten, it's a lion. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sin. So to stand over here and say, I don't have sin. You are as self-deceived as they come. You think you can avoid the danger and it won't come back to bite you. But sin, if we don't treat it like the killer that it is, always destroys us. That's the second if we say, so I want you to see the progression. The first if we say, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just fooling everybody else. It's hypocrisy. The second if we say we have no sin, now I'm deceiving myself. There's self-deception, and self-deception never leads anywhere good. It destroys us. The third, if we say, is even bigger. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. This is the big one. The first one was fooling everybody else. It's hypocrisy. The second one is fooling ourselves, which, which is self-deception, and it's dangerous. But this one says, if I stand over here and I say that I don't have sin or I ignore my sin or I hide in the shadows and pretend like I don't have to deal with it anymore and pretend like, you know, it's not really a part of me and that I don't, have a, I don't deal with the sin nature, now I've gone from uh, hypocrisy to self-deception. Now it says I make God a liar. I'm no longer just self-deceived. I'm no longer just a hypocrite. Now it is blasphemy. Because God is light, in him is no darkness at all. God is truth, he's never told a lie. So if I stand over there and say, I don't have sin, he stands up there and says, yes you do. I'm making him a liar. I am blaspheming my God by saying I don't have sin. When I claim to be sinless and I ignore the filth in my life and in my heart, it's like calling God a liar. And listen, that is blasphemy. He says we are sinners and if we say we're not, we're making him a liar. Listen, 
To deny sin and leave it untreated is to be a hypocrite. It will cause us to be self-deceived, which is dangerous, and it will eventually turn us into blasphemers of God. And I don't know any member of God's family that says, I'm okay with being a hypocrite. Yeah, self-deception won't get me. Or yeah, I'm okay with some blasphemy here and there. That's crazy. If you're a member of God's family, it is not a family trait to be hypocritical or self-deceived or blasphemous. The steps you take when you become aware of your sin will determine whether or not you have fellowship with your father. And if you stand over here when the sin, when the light shines on your sin and you see your sin for what it is and you start to say, well, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm okay or I can sweep this under the rug or I'll hide this from everyone else, you're putting yourself in a position where you cannot have fellowship with God the Father. You cannot fulfill your role as a member of the family. You cannot have fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment as a person unless you fellowship with your father. And yet you're putting yourself in a position where it's impossible. See, ultimately, your approach to sin determines how fulfilled your life is. It's not just enough to walk in the light and see the mud and, okay, I see it, it's there. No, you have to get clean. You have to say, well, I'm part of the family and my sins have been forgiven you know, so that's, that's good enough, right? No. Yeah, your sins are forgiven. It's true. Your standing with God is that you're part of the family. Uh, Jesus Christ paid for your sins, and I'm thankful for it. But it doesn't mean that the sin nature is gone. See, every single day, we're walking in the mud. Every single day, we're kind of walking and getting dirty and we're, we're getting filthy and, and the things, even if we don't mean to, it just kind of sticks to us everywhere we go. And yes, Jesus Christ paid for your sins. God's justice was served on his son, Jesus Christ, because he died and there's a wage to be required for sin and that is death. Jesus Christ died for our sins. So I don't have to die for them. But it doesn't mean, don't misunderstand, it doesn't mean that just because the penalty of sin has been placed on Christ at the cross, it doesn't mean that there's no more presence of sin it doesn't mean that I no longer have to deal with it because every single day as a child of God I sin every single day there are temptations every single day I'm walking in the mud and if I don't deal with my sin daily then my fellowship with God is broken it's cut off I just lost the signal and as hopeless as it sounds we have a reason to be encouraged because God made provision for us. And I want you to notice two things. Because again, he's talking about sin. He's talking about denying it. Either you deny it or you admit it. And when you do finally admit it, I want you to notice two things in verse 9. First is our responsibility. Our responsibility in verse 9 if we confess our sins. Now this word confess is two Greek terms joined together. One is uh, to speak, one is the same. So it's um, homo lageo, which homo is the same. Logeo or logos is to speak. So the word confess is a combination of those two words. Confess means to speak the same as, to agree with. So true confession, and here's where I really want you to get it, and I just want you to understand, so wrap your mind around it, focus on what I'm saying here. True confession takes place when you agree with God about your sins. True confession takes place 
when you agree with God. So in other words, if you're standing over here in the shadows and you're trying to hide what you're doing from everybody else and you're deceiving yourself and you're trying to hide it from God, when his light finally shines and you see the mud, instead of trying to hide it more, you agree with God about your sin. You say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. That's confession. It starts by walking in the light. You have to see the sin first. Listen, you can't agree with God about your sin unless you know what he says about sin. See, there are many of us, probably Christians in this room right here, that have sin in your life, but because you're not walking in the light, you don't even know it's there. You can't see the mud. You can't see the filth. You can't see that you're, tra- you're tr- just walking through the room, leaving it on the carpet. You don't even know it because there are no lights are on. You have to start with walking in the light so that you know what God says about your sin and you can agree with him about it then. His light shines in our lives, it reveals our sins, and as our sins are revealed to us, we humbly and submissively say about our sins the same thing that God says about our sin. I read one author and he said this, confession is not necessarily a ritualistic listing or re- a recitation of sins committed. He's not just listing sins. He's not just saying sins. He's not just saying in anger and lust and hatred and disobedience. Because we can do that, can't we? We can just go through a list. Well, Shepard says it's not necessarily a ritualistic listing or reciting of sins committed, but an honest agreement of heart with God about that which stopped the flow of fellowship between the two. It is openness with God about the issues not trying to hide anything from God by not owning up to it. It is to confess that we failed to walk in the light. And I love the way he says it because he's not saying don't just list your sins. He's, you know, he's saying agree with God about your sin. Agree that with God that it is your sin that stopped the flow of conversation. It is your sin that stopped the fellowship between you and God. It is always our sin that stops the fellowship. God's line of communication is always open. We're the ones that drop the call. It's always on our end. Our sin has stopped the fellowship. So what's there? Child of God, what is between you and your father? If there's, there's something between us, if there's something between us, then what is it? Because it is your sin, it is your responsibility as a sinner to confess that sin and say the same thing about your sin that God would say about your sin. God didn't cut it off, and if you haven't confessed it to him, fellowship is impossible because he's a God of light and he cannot fellowship with darkness. As long as the sin remains, Christian, there's no fellowship. It's important for us to understand that confession is to speak the same as what God would say about our sin. So what, the, what confession is not... Well, let me just clarify this. Confession does not take place in a confessional booth. And I'm trying to be you know, kind about this, but nowhere in the Bible does it tell a Christian to confess his sins to another person in order to be made right with God again. And I'm just giving you what the Bible says. Hebrews 4.14 states very clearly, we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is our priest. He is our mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You confess your sins to the Father because Christ gives you direct 
access to the Heavenly Father. Can you believe that? Me as a sinner, only the Son of God can serve as a high priest like that. He gives me direct access to the Father because he paid for all those sins. And so when I have now sin in my heart or sin in my life, I don't have to go through a person to get to God. I go, well, through a person, but his name is Jesus Christ. And he takes my requests, and he's my mediator, he is my intercessor, and he goes to God on my behalf, and I can go directly to the Father. Confession does not take place in a booth. Confession is not, is not a ritualistic exercise. As I mentioned earlier, it's not just going through and saying words. It's not just saying what God would say. It is a heart attitude. The agreement must take place in your heart. You can say it with your mouth, but if there's not Holy Spirit-led sorrow for the sin, confession is just lip service. See, we, we confess in response to the light. And as the light shines, the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts. And it shows us that we have fallen short. And that's where confession begins. It begins with humble acknowledgement of your sinfulness compared to God's holiness. See, so you cannot confess sins if you're full of pride. That's not a mark, a family trait of someone who confesses sins. There's a humility there. There's a, a humbling, a lowering. So confession is not in a booth. It's not a ritualistic exercise. Confession is not embracing your faults. See, too many people seem almost proud of their weaknesses, don't they? You ever met somebody who's like, well, I just have a temper, I can't really help it. You know, just, it is what it is. So, you know, I just, I just have to live with it. Or I just don't like to be told what to do, so I just don't do it. And it's almost like in our culture, you know, in our social media culture, it's kind of like, well, this is me, this is my truth. You just have to deal with it, that's who I am. And we're embracing our faults. We're embracing the things that are repugnant to a holy God. And it is never okay to have pride in the fact, well, you know, nobody can tell me what to do. It is never right to say, I just have a temper, just stay out of my way. You do not want to cross me because I just tell you like it is. That's not the family trait. There seems to be a virtue to just embrace who you are, even brag about it. Confession is always connected to light. You start with a view of God's holiness and it sheds light on your sin. And when that happens, the last thing you want to do is embrace it. Because as you see God's holiness and as his light reveals your sin, it makes what you're doing repulsive. It makes it disgusting. It makes it terrible. And you have sorrow because of it. Because compared to a holy God, boy, I am sure dirty. Absolutely dirty. Absolutely filthy. The last thing I want to do is embrace this sin. The only biblical confession takes place when you view your sin in light of God's holiness. And then you don't want it at all. You're not proud of it at all. So confession doesn't take place in a booth. It's not a real ritualistic exercise. It is not embracing our faults. And confession uses no excuses. See, to say what God says would go something like this. Heavenly Father, my sin is a violation of your holiness. Or my sin is a violation of your law. God, forgive me. Sin is, our confession is never... Um, Father, I got angry again, but you saw what my wife did. That's not confession, folks. I mean, that's what we want confession to be. But confession has nothing to do with what somebody else did. It is simply me being responsible for my own actions. And you talk about something that's not popular in our culture today, and that is personal responsibility 
for actions or decisions made that are wrong. We live in a culture where everyone wants to shift blame to somebody else. That's not confession. Confession is personal responsibility. We always have a choice in the decisions we make. Always. It may be hard. It may seem impossible. But sin only rules as much as we let it. It is our choice. So confession, when it comes down to it, is seeing your sin from God's perspective and taking responsibility for it. So that's our responsibility. And here's the great part, is God's response. Our responsibility, if we confess our sin, God's response is he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love that he describes first God's character. He says he's faithful and just. And, be, and he starts like that because he wants us to see that God will respond in, according to his nature. He's faithful. You always know the response you're going to get from him. And maybe, you know, if you're, I've been around people when you never know what they're going to be like on a daily basis. Like one day they're up, one day they're down. Some days, I mean, if you make a mistake and, and you have a boss that's hard to deal with, I mean, to take a mistake to him, you just know you're going to get it, even if you're the one that found it. You know, some people are just, you never know what you're going to get. God's not like that. He's faithful. It means he's consistent. His nature never changes. And if he says he's going to be a certain way, he'll be that way every time we come to him in confession. He, not only is he faithful, but he's also just. And that means that there is justice to be served. And you say, well, if justice is served and I'm the one that committed the sin, then I should have to pay for this sin. I should have to bear the responsibility. But here's the great part about it. You see, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And on that cross, he took the punishment for our sins for us. His life for mine. Rock of ages, cleft for me. He died in my place. And God's punishment was poured out on his own son, Jesus Christ. So there has been justice for my sin. God is just. Somebody did pay for my sin. It just couldn't be me because I'm not holy. Justice has been served, but it was served on Jesus Christ for me. God is faithful and God is just. And if he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can't say that without, without laughing a little bit because it just makes me joyful. That he would forgive me and cleanse me. I mean, he forgives us of the sins we confess. And you know what the great part is? He leaves no trace of their filthy effects in my life. In other words, he removes them as far as the east is from the west. And when, we, when I confess, the Bible says right here, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from a part of the unrighteousness. It says all Listen, when we confess, God forgives everything. He doesn't leave little post-it note reminders in our hearts to remind us and make us feel bad about it again. He doesn't leave little bits and pieces lying around like crumbs so that he can beat us up over it over and again. No, if the holy God of heaven can forgive a sinner like me, then I must learn that this process is final. It's over. And once I confess my sin, a faithful and just God forgives me and he doesn't bring it up ever again. And we should be thankful that we serve a God that forgives us of all. And yet sometimes we're the ones going back and picking them up again. Beating ourselves up over it. Feeling bad about it again. Repeatedly 
asking for forgiveness for the same sin over and over. Now, if you sin again, yes, you have to confess it. But if you've confessed it already, friend, leave it in the past. God cast it away from you in the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to ask forgiveness about it. The verse says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. All you have to do is you don't even have to beg God to forgive you for your sins. You simply go to God and you agree with him that there is sin. And you agree with him about your sin. And you say the same thing about your sin that God would say. And in confessing, in this process, our responsibility is to confess. And he forgives automatically. I don't have to pray a certain amount of times. I don't have to go through these certain religious steps to get it all forgiven. No, I simply go to a faithful and just God who every time a child of God comes after the light reveals his sin and that child confesses his sin to his God, says the same thing about his sin that God would say. God says, forgiven, done, all unrighteousness, it's all gone, it's all over. Man, God's response to our responsibility, well, you cannot beat that. You talk about a merciful God. So my challenge to you today is be a confessing Christian. Walk in the light, let your sins be revealed, and when you sin, immediately and with contrition and humility, confess it to God. Say what he has to say about your sin. Trust that he forgives. Stop going back and digging up the bones and carrying them around with you because they're done. It's over. The only way to break fellowship with God is to leave your sins unconfessed. It's the only way. There's literally no other way for a child of God to lose that fellowship, to break that relationship, except that you don't confess your sin. In the same way that you can't lose your standing with God because salvation is a one-time eternal transaction, you know, that's your role. I mean, you're part of the family. But the daily sins creep in. And that relationship is broken. You know, this is so important, this provision here. And if you've been saved any length of time, you've heard about this. You know about it. You've always known. But if the provision of confessing and forsaking doesn't exist, we don't have a hope of having a relationship with our Father. See, John, that old sage in all his wisdom, he tells us to live free from the the hypocrisy, free from the self-deception, and free from the blasphemy. Just confess your sin. Let God take care of it. So the family trait today is sensitivity to sin. How much does sin bother you? When you've seen something, men, that you shouldn't on your computer screen, how much does it bother you? Ladies, when you have a a thought or a word that is unkind or wrong, how much does it bother you? Because if you can sin and just go on with your life, then you're living in the shadows. The light's not doing its work. But if you have sensitivity to sin, then you have a family trait and confess it when it comes up. If you're part of the family, practice confession. Make things right every time you sin. Don't let them stack up because as they stack up, our fellowship is broken. Say what God says about your sin and his faithfulness and justice, he'll forgive it every time and then leave it there. Just, there's only, I mean, this is one way to know you're part of the family. You maintain, you maintain fellowship through confession. When we first moved to Sioux Falls, 
Of course, it's a cultural shock a little bit. The last month or so, you know, we're learning. But I can tell you this. When you pulled back into town, I drove that U-Haul, got on 229 and saw Sioux Falls again. I thought, we're home. It's a blessing. But there's still a lot to learn about Sioux Falls. See, we love where we live, and we used to live in, in Oklahoma. We lived on a dirt road, and we, we were perpetually, our suburban was perpetually dirty. And God just allowed us to transition smoothly here because we, again, live on a dirt road and our suburban's perpetually dirty. Well, after that, there was a snowstorm and, and uh, I don't remember which one. You know, it's April, so there's lots of them. And <laughs> we're dirty. I mean, our suburban's dirty. So, and I, I, I didn't ask my wife for permission. Sometimes you have to ask for forgiveness, okay? So my wife was driving around Sioux Falls trying to find a car wash. Because I said, I'm the pastor, the suburban has to be clean. This is one time. <laughs> so she's driving around and, and she said, everywhere she went, the garage doors were closed. All the car washes were closed. She drove to place after place after place. See, in Oklahoma, they don't close the car washes. Well, up here, like that's the default setting in a car wash. So she's driving back through town after all, finding all the car washes closed and she sees a car pull up and then the garage door opens and the car goes inside. We're like, what? <laughs> They're open. You know, we thought, we're, I mean, she thought we're never going to get our car clean. Apparently they don't do that in Sioux Falls. <laughs> we thought we weren't going to get clean because we thought it was closed. We thought we would have to live with the dirt. I mean, we thought getting clean wasn't possible right then. We thought for some reason we're getting shut out of the process. There's a secret. But none of it was true. The car wash was available. It was even open. It was faithful. And just, as, I mean, as long as we paid, it was just. We just didn't know it. We were deceived. We misunderstood Christian, the cleansing power of God's forgiveness is always open. And even if it doesn't seem like it, confession opens the door. And you can confess in your car, you can confess in your bed, you can confess at work, you can confess at school or outside or inside or you name it. Anytime the sin takes hold, stop what you're doing and confess it, it's available and you can come out the other side clean. Our faithful, just God is ready to forgive. So why, if you're a member of this family, would you continue to hide in the shadows? He already sees it. He knows it's there. And forgiveness is so much better than deception. You're missing on the joys of family fellowship. Be a confessing, a confessing Christian. It's easy to lose sight of the basics, isn't it? I've known this verse as long as I can remember. But there may not be a more important verse to my satisfaction as a child of God. Because if I don't confess my sin, fellowship is broken. But when I do, the door's open and I can come out the other side clean. Be a confessing Christian.
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.